Uh, will you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for uh, the children's home and for the church plant open arms and for Mount Traber. And thank you, Lord, for what you uh, have laid on our hearts to try to do uh, even right here in the immediate area but and out from here out abroad. We're just uh, thankful for all that you are doing in these days. And Lord, we hear so much negative news and we hear so much uh, always about all the things that's, that are wrong in our world. But we thank you, Lord, that you are at work and you want to use your people. You want to use the people that are gathered right here today, Lord, each and every one of us. You want to use us for your glory. So give us a strong sense today, Lord, of that sense of calling upon our lives. Lord, don't let us leave this place, we pray, without a, a really uh, convicting power of the Holy Spirit on our hearts and lives that we are we are being called, called to serve, called to give, called to share. Um, Lord, just um, in response to your command, Lord, we ask that you send forth many laborers into the harvest. And today as we look to your word, Lord, we pray you would use your word uh, to accomplish your will in our lives. We thank you for the scriptures that you've given us so that we can uh, know you and know what you want us to do. Uh, please be our teacher today. Uh, open our understanding and, uh, and move us according to uh, your will. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're on a three-year journey through the Bible. Three years through the Bible. It's a formidable task because you can't study the Bible in detail in three years. Uh, on Sunday mornings, at least. And so uh, so we've been saying all along, and I'll continue to say it, and I'll be saying it for the next two and a half years, is that is, if we're going to do this, if you're going to get out of this what you could and what you should, you need to be reading. You need to be reading along. Now, I know some of you have devotional tracks that you do, and, and some of you have studies that you do and so on, and that's all well and good. But if you could find it in your time to be reading through, it's like, so, for example, today is our last day in the book of Joshua. Three weeks in the book of Joshua. There's a lot in there, and we're not going to cover all of the stories, and, uh, but hopefully you'll get to read those things and put it together. And it would be very important that you would do that because uh, God gave us his, his word, the scriptures, so that he would, by them, reveal himself to us. And not just reveal himself, but reveal his ways and his ways for our lives. And so, so it's, uh, it couldn't be more important. So when we come into the book of Joshua, and the, the curriculum is focusing us on chapter 10 and 11, and that's certainly where we're going to spend a little bit of time today. But, um, but just to uh, try to get a sense for the book of, De of uh, I almost said Deuteronomy, uh, that wasn't that long ago, for the book of Joshua and, uh, and its place in the, the overall storyline or the drama of redemption that's, that's set up for us in Scripture. Joshua chapter 1, verse 3, God said to Joshua, every place the sole of your, foot, your feet, every place the sole of your feet uh, touches down, I've given it to you. Not I will give, I have given it to you. And, uh, and that phrase, I have given, comes up again and again. It's what we call a recurring phrase, which means it's an emphasis. Uh, anytime you have something that's a recurring phrase in Scripture, regardless of where you are in Scripture, uh, it's important. And so that idea is important. And, and uh, I think that um, I might have mentioned this last week. Maybe I'm, I'm not sure. But uh, Bible 
teachers and, and Bible scholars, um, they, um, did somebody be there, right there, thanks. Um, have uh, people who study the Bible have drawn a correlation between the book of Joshua and the book, New Testament book of Ephesians. Did I mention this last week at all? Uh, I don't know how long it's been since you've uh, done any study in the book of Ephesians or read the book of Ephesians, but they, they have noticed a correlation. Because you may recall in the book of Ephesians, we are called uh, by faith, to appropriate the blessings that all belong to us in Christ. Ephesians 1.3, I, I mentioned Ephesians, or Joshua 1.3, every place where the sole of your feet touched the ground, I've given to you. Ephesians 1.3 says we've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. But we, in, in, the, in the book of Ephesians, the writer Paul goes on to ex, uh, explain that we need to appropriate that. It's ours, it's been given to us, but we need to appropriate it by faith. And so it's a very similar idea here uh, that's really in, in, integral to the book of Joshua and understanding the book of Joshua is this idea of claiming the land by faith, the promises, claiming the promises of God by faith. And um, that kind of faith, you could call it fighting faith, because in the book of Joshua, uh, the people uh, were given the land, it was prom promised to them, and God said, I have given it to you, but they had to fight for it. And that might seem like a bit of a paradox to you, but, but biblical faith is a paradox. There is a paradox uh, to the whole uh, revelation of Scripture and how God provides, and yet we need faith to take hold. Remember, maybe perhaps you will remember in Philippians where Paul says, I press on to take hold of that for which he has taken hold of me. And so you have this uh, divine human cooperative, if you will, where God does all the heavy lifting, but, but he still calls us to appropriate that by faith. He says, here it is, but you have to take it. So there has to be a response before, we can be, before, it, before it can be realized. And uh, so that, that would be important. Um, We are free to ask God for any good thing. But we cannot claim what has not been promised. And I think sometimes we, we uh, perhaps get a little bit confused uh, about that. We can pray for any good thing. But what we're talking about when we talk about claiming things by faith, we're talking about the promises of God. So, for example, the Bible says that if you, are, if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive all your sin. He promises us that. So when I confess my sin and I say, Lord, you, you said in your word that if I, if I confess my sin to you and ask you to forgive me, that you will do that, I need to claim that. And I can claim that because you say, well, how, how do you know your sins are forgiven? Yeah, you hope they're forgiven, but how do you know? Well, this is how we know. God promised that. But I think sometimes we have problem, the problems we run into is when we start claiming things that God hasn't promised. And they might be good things. And maybe he will answer our prayers, and maybe he will give us some of those things. But that's not the same as claiming the promises of God. There is a difference. And so as we come into the book of Joshua and we'll go through the book of Joshua, keep this in mind. God promised them the land. 
and God promised them victory in battle in their fight for the land. They had to fight, but God promised them that victory. And that's what we see. Uh, 31 kings are listed later on in the book of Joshua. They, they took 31 kings in their fight for the land and God, as God gave them victory. So last week we looked at the battle of Jericho, which was the first city they took after entering the land. Jericho was right there. And uh, we talked about how God instructed them how to take the city of Jericho. And they took the city of Jericho. And we talked about Rahab uh, as well there. Following, uh, so just kind of traveling through here. Following the city of Jericho, they, they, they uh, launched their attack against the city of uh, Ai, uh, which was a much smaller, not very fortified city uh, at all. And they lost miserably. They suffered casualties. And then, as you read on, you find out Joshua is incredulous. He, he's like, God, what's going on? You know, you, you promised us. And, uh, and that's when God says, yeah, well, we have a problem. And then he went on to explain to Joshua that uh, one of the, the men, his name is Achan, took some of the, the spoil that they were not supposed to take. In this case, I think it was silver and, and gold and things, and he buried them under his tent. And they were specifically instructed. If you read through the, the, the instructions for the Battle of Jericho, that was part of the instruction, is that they were not to, to, to take anything personally, right? And he did. And uh, so when they went against AI, they lost. And so God told uh, uh, Joshua, he said, you know, there's sin in the camp, and you need to get to the bottom of it. Because, and, and this, is, this is an important concept. We talked a little bit about this when we were in the book of Deuteronomy. We talked a little bit about it when we were in the book of Exodus at Mount Sinai. That, that when one person sins, many people suffer. Now, that doesn't mean we incur the guilt that other, of other people's sin. You know, you are, you are responsible for your sin, and I'm responsible for my sin before God. But we suffer for one another's sin. And that's a very important concept. And, and, and when you think about it, it's so... It, it escapes us sometimes. We think we should be able to do what we want. Why shouldn't we be able to do what I want? You know, I'm not hurting anybody. You know, I take this, take this silver and gold. You know, I'm not hurting anybody else. Yeah. We like to tell ourselves things sometimes that aren't really true. Um, and as God instructs uh, Joshua how to deal with uh, Achan, the, he told them that, that he was to be eliminated, exterminated out of the community, and, and that's what they did, him and his entire family, and, and there's a pile of stones that ends up as a memorial uh, at that time in Israel's history, just like, similar, similar, I shouldn't say just like, but similar to the pile of stones that you see on the screen there that represents the, the memorial that they were to build with the stones from the, from the um, uh, riverbed, which was to commemorate the faithfulness of God in pushing back the water and enabling them then to pass over victoriously. But this time, it's a commemoration uh, as, a, as a monument of warning that our faith must be accompanied by obedience. 
And that's, uh, that's a really important topic in the book of Joshua, that our faith must be accompanied by obedience. That faith and obedience aren't the same thing, but they're irrevocably linked together. And uh, the sec- obedience must, must follow to prove our faith genuine, which is obviously a very important New Testament teaching uh, as well. Um, take a look at this uh, verse. That's chapter 6 and chapter 7. Chapter 8, uh, uh, or yeah, chapter 8, they, they advance against Ai, and they take the city of Ai. And in chapter 8, Joshua chapter 8, verse 18, it says, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. Just uh, so similar to the idea of Moses' staff. Remember all, all that when we were in the book of Exodus, where God would say, you know, Moses had that staff, and he said, stretch out your staff. And So here, God is doing something very, very similar through Joshua, because you remember Joshua, Moses is dead now. Now Joshua is God's appointed leader, and God is, uh, is uh, exalting Joshua before the people so that they would have the kind of confidence in Joshua so that they would know God is working through through Joshua and in Joshua's life to lead them and that they could move forward in faith. And so so you have that kind of similarity. New day, new leader, same God. Uh, last part of chapter 8 records the fulfillment of God's commands where they, stu- uh, where they stood before Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim and they showed it back and forth. You may remember that from Deuteronomy chapter 27. Joshua chapter 9 is the story of the Gibeonites, which is uh, an account of Israel uh, failing to ask counsel of God. They weren't supposed to make any covenants with the people of the land, and the Gibeonites disguised themselves as, as foreigners and came with their moldy bread and everything and, and made a covenant with uh, Israel. And, and Israel wasn't supposed to make covenants with the people of the land. They were supposed to drive them out of the land. Uh, but they didn't ask counsel of God. They looked at the bread. They, they, they thought it all through and thought, yeah, this is all looks legit and everything, but they did not seek counsel of God. The scripture says that they didn't ask God about it, and I think it stands, and I think most commentators uh, would tell you that it stands as, uh, as a, uh, again, a warning to you and I that thinking things through is really important, but without praying and asking God to guide us and give us discernment and direction, uh, we're, we're, gonna, we're not going to do well. And so that's really important. Um, so they end up making a covenant with the Gibeonites, and that figures prominently in the battles that follow. But uh, going back to Exodus chapter 23, verse 32, take a look at these words. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you. Um, I just said verse 32. Uh, my apologies. Okay, just just keep your eyes on that. Let me read verse 30 and, and 31. This is my mistake for for missing that, but it says, verse 30 says, little by little I will drive them out before you until you have increased and possessed the land. This is Exodus 23, right? And I will, this is 40 years prior, I will set uh, your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. Then in verse 32 it says, you shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. That's what this is all about, right? Uh, God knows how we influence and how we are influenced, and he knew 
that if they didn't drive these people out of the land, if they made covenants with them and, 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 and allowed them to become part of their society and their culture, that they would be influenced and they would conform. And that's what the warning here is against that. And so with the Gibeonites, uh, in uh, chapter uh, uh, 9 of Joshua, is, is, is an example of a number of times in the book of Joshua where we have this glimpse of the people's failure to drive people out and kind of a compromising of their, their mission. And there's a few of them. Uh, we'll chat a little bit about that in a minute or two. But, uh, but for now, I want to move on to the, the main uh, passage in the curriculum, uh, which is Joshua 10 and 11 is uh, where we're going to actually do a little bit of reading here uh, now, if you would. Joshua chapter 10, verses 1 through 8, 9 through 15. Um, let's, uh, let's read there. Joshua 10, verse 1. As soon as um, Adonai Zedek, Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction doing to Ai and his kings as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel. That's the Gibeonites who made the covenant by deceiving them, right? Um, and that they were, the, the Gibeonites were now among them as well, among them. Interesting choice of words. He feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of uh, Jarmuth, uh, to Japhia, king of Lashish, and to Deber, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, king of Lashish and the king of Eglon gathered um, their forces and went up with their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp at Gilgal saying, do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. See, there's that phrase again, I have given. All right, that's that recurring phrase. I've given them in your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So, so Gibeon makes this covenant with Israel. And Gibeon was a major city, like a royal city, it says, with, filled with warriors. And these other kings are going, Oh, oh this is not good. You know, we really should be standing shoulder to shoulder here. And now the Gibeonites have made a covenant with Israel. And, and so we, we need to attack Gibeon. We're, we need to, to, to go to battle and we need to attack the Gibeonites and, and, and eliminate them and uh, take them out of the equation. And uh, so the Gibeonites call on Israel and say, you need to come and help us here. Okay? Remember, we have made a covenant, so you need to come and help us. And so God gives uh, Joshua the green light, says, go for it. And uh, promised him that victory. And so uh, in uh, chapter 10, Joshua chapter 10 verse 9 says, So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. 
And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Bethoron and struck them as far as um, Azekah and Makeda, maybe. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Bethoron, the Lord threw large stones from heaven. We find out later that was hailstones. Uh, on them as far as uh, Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. That's interesting. More of the warriors died from the hailstones than then died by the uh, swords of Israel, of the warriors of Israel. At that time, verse 12, at that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. Um, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of uh, Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. And there, were no, there was no, um, there has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. There hasn't been another day like before or since when the Lord uh, listened to the voice of a man. He's referring there to Joshua's uh, calling on God. He speaks to the sun and the moon, uh, but obviously he's, he's calling on God uh, and the context you know, bears that out. And God heard and responded to his prayer. Um, and there's been no day like it since. This is a, this is a miracle that's unprecedented. Uh, and uh, there are some, some uh, you know, there's some uh, thoughts that um, one of the commentaries I was reading uh, this week pointed out that uh, most of the time we look at this and we think of the sun stopping. Um, he points out to Dale Val. Davis, I believe the man's name is, points out that it's possible that the sun just stops shining because the Hebrew uh, word demam, uh, uh, it means to be dumb or silent or still. And uh, it's um, the other word in the test, the word amad, uh, means to stand. And it's used uh, other places in the Old Testament. In Jonah, it's used for the seas to cease their raging the archers to cease their shooting in 2 Kings, and also in 2 Kings for the oil to cease its flowing. So there's a possibility that the writer is not talking about this, the movement as much as, he's as could, he could be talking about the shining of the sun, that maybe the sun stopped shining. And he talks on there too about the fact that they just marched all night, and when he says that, speaks to the sun and the moon and the locations in the east and the west, um, it would be morning. So he's praying this in the morning. And so there's a possibility that he's talking about uh, them having marched all night. And now they're looking at a scorching hot day. 
and that his prayer is that the sun would not shine and the moon would uh, would hold uh, its light to enable them to uh, fight the battle. Maybe. Or maybe God just stopped the sun. As hard as it is for you and I to even fathom how I got, like, you know, like, that's not even possible. That's the whole point, right? That's the whole point behind the marathon. It's imp- it is impossible. It's absolutely, totally, completely impossible. I'll leave it with you uh, what you think uh, exactly how this miracle went down. But I do want you to know that it was an, an unprecedented miracle. No matter, no matter exactly what happened or what God did, it was completely unprecedented. You know, we talk about Moses and the great miracles he did. And, that, and that's the emphasis coming down through the life of Moses up to the book in the book of Deuteronomy. is like it ends there and says there was no prophet ever like Moses before or since. There was never a prophet like Moses who, to whom, through whom God did these just totally amazing, impossible miracles. But then you get into the book of Joshua and you come to this and it says there's never been a day like it before or a day like it since. And it's almost like Joshua is the new, he's the, he's, he's the new uh, Moses, God's, God's leader for the day. And, uh, and I also want to point out to you that it is a, um, it's a miracle of prayer. And I will reiterate what I said earlier. We're free to pray for any good thing. I can probably guess that you probably know this, but if you were to pray tomorrow for the sun to stop, it might not happen. Okay? Doesn't mean it couldn't. Because God can do anything. He put, the, he put the sun there, folks. He can do that. But you can't claim that. You can't claim what God hasn't promised. You can ask for what God hasn't promised. You can't claim what God hasn't promised. But you can claim what God has promised. At least that's my reading of Scripture. Um, Moses was such a huge presence in their lives, and now God is really... Uh, validating the leadership of of, uh, of Joshua. And so the rest of chapter 10, um, the rest of chapter 10 has the conclusion of the fate of the five kings that rose up uh, that we read about there in, in the early part of chapter 10. And then in chapter 11, verse 23, we have these words here. Chapter 11, verse 23. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. So several things there, right? The the, the reference to rest. I've mentioned this before. I'll mention it again. That idea of rest is is a recurring theme. And in this case, it, it specifically mentions rest from war. Fighting is not fun. Sometimes it's necessary. But it's not the end goal of our lives. We're commanded in the book of Hebrews to strive 
to enter into his rest. The goal is peace. God's goal is peace. But in order to achieve peace, sometimes we have to fight. And I mentioned the book of Ephesians. You know, you read through these accounts in Joshua, and you think, well, what does this have to do with me? And that's a really important question that really uh, I want to, for you, all of us to think hard about. But if you know anything about the book of Ephesians, you know that in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul says to those Christians, uh, men and women like you and me, he says, uh, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the armor of God where the, whereby you can stand against the evil one. Put that helmet of salvation on your head and, and put that breastplate of, of righteousness on and put that belt of truth on. Put those gospel shoes on and take that sword of faith or that uh, shield of faith and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray. He talks about all those things there, talking to you and to me uh, about a battle that's every bit as real as this battle, these battles here. The difference is, he says there, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, right? Spiritual forces of wickedness. Uh, they're, 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 we, we have an enemy, and he's very much at work, and he's very much at work in your life. What are you going to do about that? Are you going to fight or not? How do you fight as a Christian? How do you, how do you battle as a Christian? How do you take that, that, that faith that God allows you to have and use it to reach out and take hold of the promises of God, the one who promises you victory in Jesus? He promises us that. And we can claim that. But that doesn't mean we don't have to fight. We fight by faith. Uh, the passage that we just looked at there, uh, Joshua 11, it says that Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to, the Israel, to Israel according to their tribal allotment. So there's 24 chapters in Joshua, the book of Joshua, and this is only chapter 11, and, and it's like, so it's a done deal. They took, they took the land, um, and, and, and they settled it, and they had rest. So what's the rest of the book of Joshua about? Well, this is kind of a summary statement, but it's... it's uh, and it's kind of reiterated later on, but uh, it it's, it's makes for a very great and instructive reading. Chapter 12 is a summary of all the kings that were defeated under Moses and then under Joshua. Um, the last verse in chapter 12 makes reference to 31 kings in total that were defeated. Chapter 13 begins with these words. Chapter 13 begins by saying, now Joshua was old. And there was still land remaining to be unconquered. And then it goes and it outlines the boundaries of the allotments of land for the different tribes. Um, chapter 14 outlines the allotments given on the west of the jo Jordan. I'm probably, I should be using this hand because it's the left, your left looking at the map that's going to be coming up here in a minute on the screen, this left, here. Um, 
chapter 15 zooms in on the territory of Judah and tells the story of Caleb. Remember Caleb? From Numbers chapter uh, 13 and 14, I think it is, or 12 and 13, somewhere in there. He was, him and Joshua were the only two of the spies that came back and said, yes, we can do this. Have faith in the Lord. He's given us the land. And everybody else went, you're crazy. And now we have Caleb come to Joshua and say, I want my inheritance. Give me this land. And he, and he becomes a stellar example. Uh, he's 85 years old, he says uh, in so many words to Joshua. And uh, I love this quote from Dale Ralph Davis. He says, as more and more Israelites began to settle into the rhythm of Canaanite nature worship and bend the knee to Baal, it's not difficult to see how this Caleb tradition would frequently bolster the faith of God's beleaguered remnant at many points throughout Israel's history. Caleb is a, a remarkable example of, of what it means to claim the promises of God by faith and move forward into that with obedience. Uh, chapters 16, 17, 18, and 19 outline all the allotments of all the tribes. And you remember the tribes. You remember Genesis, the sons of Jacob, right? We, we spent time there, we, and we're not, we're not going back. There's no going back. We're going straight ahead. Um, Tucked into that is this, this statement, Joshua 18.1. Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. Now, this might not seem all that significant to you, but let me just, just give me a moment of your time. Uh, they had been camped at Gilgal. And uh, this represents a moving uh, of their base camp, but also they moved the tent of the meeting, the tabernacle, to uh, Shiloh, uh, and the land lay subdued before them. So here they are. The, the, the tabernacle will remain at Shiloh for close to 400 years. And why is that significant? Because when we come into the book of Judges, up through into the book of 1st and 2nd Samuel, you will see that Eli ministered of, in the tabernacle, who was a high priest in the time of uh, when Samuel was, a, Prophet Samuel was a little boy, and when little Samuel goes to mother, take, uh, goes and prays for a son, and ends up taking little Samuel uh, to serve in the tabernacle, that all happens at Shiloh, and the tabernacle will stay in Shiloh until it's moved. By who? By David. And so when we come into uh, Second Samuel, and we start to, to, and I think it's actually first, you know, Second Samuel, where David moves the, uh, the tabernacle, the ark of the Lord to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem would become uh, Zion, Mount Zion. All that reading through the Old Testament, through the Psalms, all about Mount Zion, all of that in reference to Jerusalem, the city of God. Jerusalem, the city of God. When you come into the New Testament, the book of Revelation, it's, it, we, we, and you read about New Jerusalem. New Jerusalem is envisioned by the Jerusalem uh, that, we're, that we're reading about here. We're going to actually read a little bit 
a verse about that in a minute. But, uh, you know, the, you read through these, um, uh, well, first put the map up, if you would, uh, Don, thank you. Just the Shiloh, I don't have my pointer, but you see, I put a circle there. You see that there, oval? It's not a circle, it's an oval. And uh, I guess you can't see what, oh, it got moved. Isn't that interesting? That's really interesting. Because I saved that as a JPEG. I wonder how that happened. Interesting. Um, you see the oval in the, in the middle? Answer me. Can you see it? Okay, good. Um, you see to the right of it says uh, Shiloh. Okay? So that's where Shiloh is. Right in pretty much, you couldn't get much closer to the center of the land, the promised land. Okay? So that's the, the area we're talking about. And, and when you... Um, the word Shiloh in, is a Hebrew word. I, I can't remember what it was called before that, but it's, it probably says there. But it's a Hebrew word, and it, it, it means place of peace. Place of peace. Is that still set out in front of them there, that idea of peace. You know the thing that we all want? The thing we all long for? Peace. Uh, what does Jerusalem mean? Does anybody recall? Jerusalem means, and I want you to remember this, it means city of peace. Probably the most violent place on the face of the earth for through history, but it means city of peace. And um, so here they are at Shiloh, and the tribes were all allotted their inheritance. They're dividing up the land, and Joshua is leading the way in and, and the elders, the other elders, they're working together, dividing up and setting all the boundaries. And as you read through there, you, several chapters of these boundaries. And, you, and, and if you read through and you're thinking, you know, all these place names and, and uh, um, you know, names of places, names of kings, a lot of geography. You know, we're reading history. It's like these things all happened several thousand years ago. And, and we know how much we tend to like history, right? We just consider it all irrelevant. Um, and, and the geography. Well, we consider the geography relevant too. Like, because we live here in beautiful Canada. And what's that, you know, what does the geography of the Middle East have to do with my life? And, uh, you know, when you think about it, it, it really isn't that different than reading any part of the Bible. Because anytime you read any part of the Bible, you're reading about things that happened thousands of years ago and things that happened in a place far away. And that's why a lot of the time, a lot of us struggle with just the whole idea of, you know, of the Bible's relevance in our lives, period. And you say, well, what, what does, uh, you know, the, this here idea of the land, what, you know, what does it really have to do with me? If I were to ask you a question about your property, you probably would perk up. Say, tell me, where you, tell me about where you live. Tell me about your backyard. I can tell you about my backyard. I live on the river. It's beautiful. I can go down in the summertime and when it gets scorching hot and just sit in the river. We call it our river. We just kind of claim it. Um, but if I were to ask you about you know, where you live, tell me about your home. Tell me about what you have in your home, the things that you... Uh, count dear as your possessions. Because the reality is that's what this is talking about. These people 
every meadow, every pasture, every hill, every river, every mountain, their ears would pick right up because that's where they lived. And they, this was become their home. If you've ever been homeless, maybe you can appreciate how this would have felt for these people and how invested they were in this because God was giving them a homeland, a place to live, a place to raise their children. See, it was all part and parcel of the, 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 the promises of God to them. And you might say, well, that was Israel, though. I, I don't have any inheritance with Israel. No, see, you do. You just don't know you do. Again, I'm going to quote Dale Ralph Davis here uh, because I liked, liked what he says uh, in his uh, commentary. He says, if you have read chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17 of Joshua as though they comprise an ancient, tedious geography lesson, you have wrongly read them. They are charged with a current that runs through them, the crisis of faith or unbelief. Behind every town he lists and every border he traces the writer is seeking to raise up disciples of Caleb. There's stuff in here that we need to know when we are thinking about what it means to have faith in God and to win battles by faith and what it means to take hold of the promises of God for the inheritance that belongs to us. Um, I want to come back to that in just a second, and I and I I am conscious of the fact that I don't want to I don't want to go too too much over today. But just uh, uh, look at a few maps. Um, I want chapter twenty. There's twenty four chapters. Chapter twenty is really interesting. It talks about cities of refuge. It's so interesting. It's so cool. We we have nothing like this. It's a, it's almost like a foreign concept. Very fascinating. There. It talks about the Avengers. The Avengers. You know, the movie The Avengers. Well, this is about the the original Avengers. Okay, and God cre created this this system where there were six uh, cities of refuge, and a city of refuge was a place that somebody could flee to if they accidentally killed somebody, if they if they were guilty of uh, some type of uh, accidental death. They had, and, and the avengers of the blood, like if it was your brother that accidentally died, and you decided you wanted to take vengeance on on this person who who's responsible, you feel responsible, that person could flee to one of these cities and he would get refuge there. And, uh, and it wasn't just that simple. There was a, a meeting of the elders at the gate. He had to show up at the gate and he had to plead his case. And there's a whole system there, but it's, it's really, really fascinating. So those, and it's, they're spread out. You notice there's three on the, the uh, uh, west of the Jordan and three to the east of the Jordan spread out through the whole land. Um, and then, and then chapter uh, uh, moves on to talk about the, the, the Levitical cities. Um, and uh, there's the, the Levitical cities. Now, again, bear with me. We're studying the Bible together, okay? All the tribes were given land except for one tribe. They got no land. They were the Levites. But they did get cities, 48 of them. That's those 48 cities. Notice they're spread all through the land. Now, what, what's the significance of that? Well, there's tons of significance, but here, think about, just think about this, okay? Let's say you're a, an Ephraimite. You're from the tribe of Ephraim. You would get to settle up there just uh, the area of uh, probably middle, 
middle uh, west side of the Jordan. Okay, so you, you and your family, and your uncles and your aunts and your cousins and 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 all your you know family members and your children would go up there and it's all oh, it so homey, so wonderful, so amazing. But if you were a Levite, you got scattered. Think about that. Why would God do that? Well, what were the Levites responsible for? They were responsible to serve, to lead the nation in worship, and to teach the people about the Lord and his laws and his commandments. And God scattered them throughout all of the people uh, of the land. In fact, it says in Joshua 21, verse 41 and 42, it says, the cities of the Levites in the midst of the possession of the people of Israel in the midst of the possession of the people of Israel were in all 48 cities with their pasture lands. Here's the other thing. All the Levitical cities didn't, weren't just cities. They got all the pasture land around the cities. Think about the, the, the incredible visual beauty of this, okay? Small town, it says cities, but they were like, they were like towns. So picture this. You're traveling. You're, you're, you're traveling through the land, and, and you look, and there's this, you know, rising out of, out of the, out of the, the um, horizon is this, you know, this beautiful little town and you see the, the houses and, and the buildings and everything and, and you know the clotheslines and you hear the children playing and everything and then all around the town these beautiful pasture lands and they and the cities of refuge were also Levitical cities so they were they were towns or cities of 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 uh, worship or they were supposed to be and and serving and teaching and refuge. It's a beautiful picture. And God intended it to be very beautiful. Unfortunately, it, it didn't really all end up working out that way, but we'll be talking about that in two weeks' time when Josh Fillmore's here. He's going to be taking us into the book of Judges. And uh, we'll see more about that. But Joshua 21, 41 and 42, the cities of the Levites in the midst of the possession. Joshua 21, verses 43 and 45, immediately following that, says, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it. Um, we won't talk about chapter 22. That's where the two and a half tribes go home, and there's a beautiful scene there. Beautiful, beautiful community, uh, relationship, brothers, you know, uh, who fought. Roughly, we figure, based on the, the dates given, five years they fought with their brothers before they were allowed to go back home, and there's a, another an altar there as a witness, and so on, and I'd love to talk more about that, uh, but we want uh, Joshua 23, 1 to 5, a long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced to years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and its heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am old and well advanced in years, you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it is uh, the Lord your God who has fought for you. There you have it, eh? The Lord has fought for you. The Lord is a warrior. The psalmist says, lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up your, your ancient doors, for the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. This idea, excuse me, this idea of God fighting for his people. I don't know what that does for your prayer life to know that God fights for you, but it should do a lot. It should do a lot for us. Um... You know, is God just an, a warrior in the Old Testament or is he a warrior in the New Testament? 
Read the book of Revelation. Especially read Revelation 19 and decide whether you think God is still a warrior or not. It's not just an Old Testament thing. Not because he likes to make war. Um, okay. I'm going to... You're going to need to read it because you know that passage that everybody has on their, or used to, in the house, in the plaques, you know. Uh, Decide this day whom you will serve, Joshua 24. Decide for yourself this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You've seen it, right? That's Joshua 24. That was part of Joshua's uh, commission to the people as he was getting ready to leave this earth. And then as you come into chapter 24, it says that Joshua died and they buried him there in his inheritance. And they took the bones of Joseph that they had brought from Egypt and they buried Joseph there in his inheritance. And the book of Genesis ends with the death of Joseph. And the, and the book of uh, Deuteronomy ends with the death of Moses. And the book of Joshua ends with the death of Joshua. And then you come into the New Testament in, uh, I'm going to jump ahead in my notes and took, take you a look, just one more passage, and that's Hebrews 11. Is in Hebrews 11, it says this, at the very end of listing, name after name after name of all of these, these great uh, leaders and saints, these Old Testament believers, at the very end, it says this in Hebrews chapter 11. It mentions um, uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and, and, and Joshua and, and Rahab. And then at the very end, it says, can't talk about all of them, but then it says, and all these... Chapter 11, verse 39 and 40. And all these, though commended uh, through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. There was an incompleteness to it. There was an incompleteness to it. You know, when we talk about the land, and we talk about the promises of God and everything, like this is really, really great, God. This, you know, we have a home now, and, and, and it's really wonderful, but, oh, yeah, then we're going to die. And we know no matter how great life in this world is, it's always this cloud that hangs over it all because it's all temporary. And you... You have to understand, I, I, have to, I have to ask you to understand this, that even these Old Testament saints understood that. As great as the physical land was, as a promise of God, there was a much greater promise. If you back up in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, talking about Abraham, and I, I will make this quick, but talking about Abraham who first walked, it was Abraham that God said, Abraham, every place where the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, I will give to you. Uh, it was him, and he says in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 and 16, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. So in other words, they didn't get to see him up close, but from afar and in a distance, they having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. In the New Testament, we're called uh, aliens, strangers, exiles, sojourners, pilgrims people that are looking for a homeland, people that are looking for a better country. 
people that are looking for the city that God has prepared for us. How sure are you of the promises of God? How much do you, confidence do you have in knowing what God has promised you? Because, yes, we are not Old Testament Israel. But we do share in their inheritance because God has, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who succeeded in all the ways that Israel failed, has brought us into a covenant with him. And he has made promises to us. He has made you promises. He hasn't promised you everything. You're free to ask for any good thing. But there are some things he has promised, and you can claim those promises by faith. Think about where you live and think how wonderful it is, how nice it is to have a home. To be able to just enjoy. You know, if you're here today and you have young children in your home, enjoy every second of that. I mean that sincerely. Enjoy it. Don't get distracted and let time go by. Enjoy it. But it will go by. It's not going to last. What then? Scripture says that we have a home. It's a better homeland, a better country. It's a city not made with human hands. There's, I can think of no greater promises than the promises that belong to you and to me in Christ. I want to ask you to stand and, and pray with me as we finish up. So as we come to the book, end of the book of Joshua and the death of Joshua, it's not the end of the story. The story continues. But in the book of Joshua, there are some amazing lessons about what it means to have biblical faith and how by faith we call on God and we pray, uh, prayerfully appropriate by faith what he has promised us, which enables us to live for him, which enables us to have victory in our lives, which enables us to go forward in the obedience of faith to claim the promises of God that we have in Christ. I think that's probably the main point that God wants us to get out of the book of Joshua is what it means to move forward in faith in our lives, faith in him, faith in his promises. So, 
quarter after one. I want to pray with you. Quarter after 12. Who changed the, this is the quarter after one. Somebody changed the clock. It must have been one of the kids. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I do have a question for you, and that is, are you laying hold of that for which Christ has taken hold of you? Are you appropriating what he has for you? Are you fighting the fight of faith? Are you claiming the promises of God? He promises to give you victory in your personal life as you walk with him. That kind of victory, the victory that Jesus has for you. Are you claiming that? Are you pressing forward? Are you fighting? Or have you given up? Because if you've given up, you need to know this. He fights for you. It says that more of the soldiers died from the stones than died from the swords. Why? Because God is fighting for them. And God is fighting for you. And you might be here today and you may be thoroughly discouraged. You might even be in despair. But you need to know that God is fighting for you. Right now, he's fighting for you. Because he wants you to have victory in your life, your personal life. Uh, pray with me. Lord, I pray for, uh, for this wonderful group of people here today that you would give us all a really strong sense of your presence and power in our lives and that you would enable us to see you as the warrior God, the one who fights for his people. We thank you for the victory that you have given us and that we can step out in faith and obey your call and put on our gospel armor and claim the promises of God for victory in our lives over um, the sin that would so easily beset us, Lord, that we would um, move forward from this day that we would, be, we would be taking ground this day by faith in Jesus Christ. I pray that for your people here. And I pray if there be even one person here who has never, never laid hold of the promise of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ, that today would be the day that they would do that, that you would grant them that faith, that they would put their faith and trust in you. Lord, we thank you that you'd love and care for us so much and you care about our families. You've made a way. And we thank you, Lord. Help us to take it by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.